Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jay Bird. But this is no ordinary boner. No. The veins bulge, the head swells up like a crab apple, the whole thing gets all distorted and red like a dog boner. That and more. But before that, did you know that Risk is on Reddit? We have a subreddit, Risk Podcast. A lot of people chatting about the stories over there. We also have our Facebook group, the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Risk Show. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. We love when our fans engage with us. You know, tell us how you're feeling about the stories. Ask us questions about becoming involved in the show. Tag your friends who might be interested in a particular story being discussed or tag your friends who might be interested in maybe one day pitching us a story. Send us ideas for how you would like more fan engagement on our socials. And don't forget, I am available for one-on-one online video conference coaching on topics like storytelling for business, storytelling for your career, storytelling for performance, like, you know, shows like Risk, personal mentoring and life coaching with clients located anywhere in the world. If you just go to kevinallison.com, Everything you need to know is there. It'll take you to the site pensite.com, which is a platform that allows for these video conferencing sort of coaching sessions. I have helped people prepare for speeches, interviews, pitches, and I've had conversations with people who just want to explore some of their memories without even having a very specific agenda for it. I've mentored people who have interest in, for example, the kink community. I've taught people how to meditate back on some of their early memories just to revisit them and kind of explore around there. I've taught teachers, preachers, lawyers, artists, tour guides, you name it. So if you think you might like to sit down online looking at the computer and talking right to me for a half hour or an hour, there's a whole array of different kinds of trainings and meetings you can find there at Pensite. But the place to go to enter into it all is kevinallison.com, K-E-V-I-N-A-L-L-I-S-O-N.com. Also, Adam and Eve says the best part of staying at home is playing at home. Take advantage of the downtime and choose almost any one item at 50% off. When you do, you'll get 10 free boredom-busting gifts, including six spicy movies, a three-piece bonus kit, and free shipping delivered right to your door. Remember, the offer code is RISK. That's RISK at the checkout. Adam and Eve has thousands of products to make you glad you're staying at home. Uh, Sex toys make being at home enjoyable. Hell, even shopping from home is more enjoyable when you're shopping for sex toys. So go to adamandeve.com and use that offer code RISK. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Bar Case behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Excess. <laughs> Something I know very well. It, it, maintaining a balance of things is one of life's great challenges, I feel. Don't you? Now, uh, before we get to anything, I should give a big old shout out to our latest Patreon member, Mr. Badonkadonk, <laughs> who, who uh, pledged $25 per month over at Patreon. Listen, it means so much to us if you can help to keep the show running by becoming a patron. And also, there's always bonus stories over there. There's a phenomenal, phenomenal bonus story that we're putting up this week on Patreon. It's by the wonderful Chris Garcia. Check this out. She's like, I have a huge crush on this DJ. I'm like, go fuck a DJ. Enjoy the bed bugs and paying for his cricket wireless. I don't give a shit. You really are missing out if you are not getting our Patreon bonus stories. We also have check-ins there, interviews with members of the staff and some of the storytellers. There is so much to find at patreon.com slash risk. And if you love what we do... I'll tell you, we need every we need every cent. Now, in a little bit, we're gonna hear from a new favorite of ours. Jay Bird is gonna be back on the show. But before that, an older favorite of ours, <laughs> Gaster Almonte. His special, Immigrant Maid, is streaming on Amazon Prime right now. You can find Gastor on Twitter or Instagram at Gastor Almonte. Here he is now with a story we call Rubber Love. No one ever price shops when they're out to buy condoms. You know, like no one's ever haggling for the best price. Right, I've been to the corner store many times and I've never seen somebody be like, yo, I need that three pack of Lifestyles, but $5 is ridiculous, sir. And they should, right? Because every penny counts, every dollar matters. You know, I remember when I was 24 years old, my father sat me down and he was like, yo, Gastor, at your age, I had a vacant lot, a corner store, and three buildings. And I was like, well, I got a futon. <laughs> and he was like, that's why I'm concerned. You got to make better economic decisions. Every penny counts. Save your money because if you don't need it, your friends will need it. If your friends don't need it, your family will need it, and you'll be happy you have it. So when later that day, when my girlfriend came up to me and she was telling me that she was going to throw a bachelorette party for her sister and that she needed to buy condoms for the party games and the best price she could find was 100 condoms for $77 on Amazon, I said, baby, I could do better. <laughs> now, we've been dating for a few years at this point. Me and Gabby weren't the prime experts in the current condom market. You know, we'd given up that practice some time ago. So, 
I called up my friend Jeff. Jeff was doing big things. I heard about him everywhere. I was like, yo, Jeff, your legend is growing. People are talking about it. Congratulations on your work, sir. He says, thank you, guys. So I said, Jeff, real proud of what you're doing out there. However, there's no way that you are achieving this level of success at retail prices. Where are you buying your condoms at, sir? And he was like, oh, actually, I get them from the pharmacy, uh, pay roughly uh, $16 for 30 condoms, just about 50 cent per condom. Not bad, but I want more. (laughs) And I started to realize that the more you shop for condoms, the more you sound like an ambitious drug dealer. (laughs) You know, like, I don't want to buy them from where you buy them from. I want the source. You know? So I'm shopping around, finally I said, honey, we gotta start this search fresh. I sat down at the computer and I typed in what at the time I thought were the most ridiculous words ever into Google. I typed in free New York condoms. And this was the same year that New York decided to give out free condoms. They called it free New York condoms. (laughs) Incredible coincidence, it was great. I click on the site, and you know, I've never gotten free condoms before. I didn't know how it worked. I figured it was going to be like, yo, I need 50 condoms. Where can we meet? <laughs> but it's not like that. They ask you real questions, you know? They were like, uh, what organization are you with? And I was like, oh, shit. Uh, this is a youth group. How many people would tell your youth group? Honey, uh, how many uh, young ladies are going to this party? Uh, she says, uh, it's about 40 of us. 40 young ladies attend my youth group. And they said, cool, we're gonna send you condoms. And now right now, if you're a normal person, you have a number in your head for what the right amount of condoms is to send 40 young ladies in New York. And I promise you, the city of New York disagrees with you. <laughs> and we live here, you know, I get it. There's a lot to complain about. My garbage never gets picked up on the right day. Trains are always late. They don't shovel the snow. I hear you. There's a lot to work on in this city. But I will tell you this. If you tell the government of New York, you I need condoms. They take that shit seriously. <laughs> They sent me 2,000 condoms. That's an insane amount of condoms, right? Like, say what you will, single ladies in New York, the city believes in you. It's bothered me because, you know, it's been a few years now. I've tried every day since to think of one time where if you would have came up to me, hey, yo, Gaston, we about to go do such and such. My instinct answer would be, oh, you know what the right amount of condoms for that is? (laughs) 2,000 condoms. It's never the right answer. It's too many condoms. I don't care what you're thinking of. It's too many. (laughs) And they sent me a 1,000 packs of lube, too. I didn't ask for them. They just showed up. Like here, this is all us, you're a valued customer. (laughs) I don't care how many forms you fill out, 
when 2,000 condoms show up at your door, you feel like you did something wrong. <laughs> so I hid them in my closet. I was nervous, you know. This feels like a crime, you know? So I called up Gabby. I was like, honey, I need your help. You need to come over here. She comes over. Gabby and I are now married. Been married 10 years. She has been incredible. Thank you. She is super supportive. She has held me down through every obstacle I've faced in my life, except this one. <laughs> she came to the door. She's like, Gaston, what's all this? I was like, well, uh, you asked me to get you condoms. You know, how many condoms do you think you need? She's like, I don't know, I think I'm gonna need like 50 condoms so you're gonna play some party games. And I was like, great, can we throw your sister like 40 bachelorette parties? <laughs> and she's like, Gaston, I was perfectly happy paying $77 for 100 condoms. I'm gonna take the 100 condoms I committed to. But the rest of this is on you. And she left me, 1,900 condoms. <laughs> I was gonna throw them out. What would you do? That's too much stress. I don't need that on my shoulders. Even if you're not using condoms, just the idea of 1,900 times of sex feels like too much pressure to live up to. I didn't want it in the house. Like, I knew it was gonna be in the closet. I don't need that in my life. So I'm throwing them in the garbage bag, but I thought of my father. If you don't need them, your friends will need them. If your friends don't eat them, your family will need them, and you'll be happy you have them. So I decided, I was like, I'm gonna give out these condoms this weekend. So I got on the phone, I called my friends, we're all in our 20s, thinking people gonna need condoms. You know, and I figured people would be like, oh, yo, you're such a great guy, thank you, you're doing great service out there, keep it up, you're an awesome person. No, that's not what happens. When you call people and you tell them, yo, I got condoms, they don't say thank you. They don't say how many. They all say the same thing. What's going on? <laughs> and then I got to explain this whole situation again. Three hours in, I had four conversations, gave out five condoms total. <laughs> it's too slow. I'm trying to do numbers here, you know? I'm stressed out. I was like, okay, I got to figure something out here. This happened to be during peak prime America era, you know, people was doing all those pyramid scheme things, so I was like, okay, I gotta approach it like they do. So I called up all my friends, like, yo, listen, I need you to wear a shirt and tie, meet me at my house in an hour, I got a business proposal for you. And they all came to my crib, I sat them down, I said, listen, this year is your year, I believe in you, here's 20 condoms, be safe out there, make it happen. Called up my friend Mark, he was turning 25 that week, I said, Mark, you are about to make history this year. You get a whole brick, 250 condoms. Make it happen, brother. <laughs> My cousin Marco was in town from the Navy. I gave him 250 condoms to take back to his people. To this day, I get emails from random sailors. <laughs> hey, yo, listen, Gastor. No, we never met, but 2009 in Japan would have not been the same without you. Go out the whole weekend, I'm doing numbers, I'm giving them out as much as I can. There's only so much you can do, there's 1,900 condoms left, this is numbers here. Sunday night, it's like one in the morning, I'm wrapping up my weekend, I'm pulling up to the Crown Fried Chicken on Fulton. I got my box, and I still got like 600 condoms left, you know. Great, you know, success, I've given out most of them, but 
it's still not what I wanted. I wanted to get rid of all of them. So I'm sitting at the counter. I place my order. I'm a little dejected. This dude sits next to me. And he's like, yo, I never seen somebody sad with this many condoms before. <laughs> and I tell him my journey, you know. He's like, that's crazy, man. I take a couple condoms off you. He takes three condoms off me, you know. And he goes outside. And he tells a few more people. When they walk in, they take a couple condoms as well. You know, I don't know if you've ever given out condoms at a Crown Fried Chicken before. <laughs> but when you do, you know, the word spreads pretty quickly. <laughs> By 2.30, it's now part of the combos, you know? Like people walking in, yeah, let me get a three-piece smash and two rubbers, let's go. You know what I mean? Got plans tonight. 4 a.m., emptied the box, I've got rid of all the condoms. Successful weekend, I'm thrilled. I get home, I pass out, I'm sore, exhausted. Almost as if I'd used the 2,000 condoms myself. But I gotta get up the next day. My dad, you know, he's a landlord of East New York. We gotta walk around to the builders, we gotta do work. So I was like, cool, you know, we get up in the morning, we walk through the neighborhood, going building a building, doing what we gotta do. And, you know, I didn't realize when you give out 2,000 condoms in one weekend in the same neighborhood, people wanna thank you. You become like a celebrity of sorts, you know? So the first time somebody walks up to you and they're like, yo, condom dude. And you're standing next to your father. You try to play it off, you know, like, I don't know what's going on, pop. Crazy shit, you know? Second time some dude comes up to you, yo, condom, yo, this your father? Yo, you're raising a great young man, sir. <laughs> Figures a coincidence. I don't know what's going on, pop. Some dude look like me out here giving out rubbers. It's crazy. But the third time it happens, you got to own it. It is what it is. You know? So I'm like, yo, pops, Gabby needed to buy condoms for her sister's bachelorette party. She was going to buy 100 condoms for $77. I found them online for free. So I saved Gabby $77. And I saved like 1,900 people at least 20 years of child support payments. You told me every penny counts. I'm doing the Lord's work. <laughs> and he looks at me and he's like, Gastor, you have a lot of trouble interpreting my advice. <laughs> and we were going to leave it at that. You know, like how men do, where like they just decide we're not talking about this ever again. It was going to be great. It was a good moment. We bonded our secret. It was magical. Until eight weeks later. It was Saturday, my dad's banging on my door. And he's like, yo, condom dude. <laughs> I'm like, condom dude? Like, What's going on? He's like, you got work to do. You got some stuff out front. Because apparently, when you tell the city of New York <laughs> that you have a youth group that's attended by 40 young ladies, 2,000 condoms and 1,000 packs of lube, is an eight-week supply. (laughs) 
don't know what y'all are doing out there, but slow it the fuck down. It's crazy. I got these deliveries every eight weeks for two years. This is insane. I was building pallets with them in my basement. Before I let y'all go, uh, just let y'all know, uh, my favorite part of being kind of dude was easily the year after I stopped giving out the condoms and I would walk through the neighborhood with my now wife and daughter and you can see the panic in everyone's eye. They <laughs> realize condoms ain't work for me. Thank you very much. Oh, Robert, you're the one. You make lots of fun. Robert, I'm fond of you. Volvo, Vodio, Robert, joy. When I squeeze you, woo, he's ticklish. Woo. Oh, every day when I find a rubber gub gubby. Rubber, 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 rubber. Thanks, Kevin. Hello! Great to be here, back home. I want to take you all back to the year 1988, before some of you were even born. When I, like many gay boys and girls before me, have moved to New York City to come out of the closet, because doing so in my podunk Texas town is out of the question. <laughs> Can anybody relate? <laughs> anybody? Okay. I arrive uh, in the fall, just before I turn 25, and I am delighted to discover that gay sex lurks around every corner. <laughs> For example... I stop into the Grand Central Station one day to use the bathroom, and as I'm standing there at the urinal, I notice that the guy to the right of me is playing with himself, and I'm like, what? I look to the guy to the left of me to see if he's seeing what I'm seeing, and he's doing the same fucking thing. And this isn't an isolated event. It happens all the time in practically every men's room I go into. So before long, I have a map in my head Charting a path from Penn Station up to uh, Port Authority, over to Grand Central, up to Times Square, and back around to Penn Station. And I'll walk this circle for hours and hours, night after night, going from one toilet to the next. In Times Square, I discover these porn shops that have closets in the back, you know, where you can go and sample the goods. But you can also interact with your neighbors through the walls. There, there are holes in the walls about this big around. They're waist high. They're called glory holes for obvious reasons. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and it's through one of these glory holes that a guy, a man, a, a dick, uh, squirts its load right into my face. Not that I wasn't asking for it, but I freak out, and I run home, I gargle with Listerine, I call my friend Jim in Houston, and I say, am I going to get AIDS from this? He says, eh, I think it'll take a little more than that. You see, not only am I pretty naive, I'm also terrified of AIDS, basically because I assume it's coming for me. My friend Jim's got it. 
And my grandfather always says, if you live that lifestyle, you get what you deserve. So in my mind, it's not so much a question of if I'm going to get AIDS. It's just a matter of when. So I just try not to think about it too much, you know, and just have fun while I still can, which I realize is a pretty fucked up and immature attitude, but I'm a pretty fucked up and immature and horny 25-year-old, so <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Also in Times Square, there are these gay movie theaters. They used to be old vaudeville houses or maybe Broadway theaters, and it's in places like this where I hobnob and rub elbows, among other things, with famous people, such as a certain black bisexual science fiction writer, I'll give you a minute, or a, a short ginger British pop star who sings everything in falsetto. Run away, turn away, run away, turn away, run away. (laughs) Now, in case you think I've moved to New York City just to be a big gay slut, let me clarify. I also fancy myself a playwright. And to that end, a play I've written called My Pet Homo, which stars an up-and-coming drag queen by the name of RuPaul, gets produced, yeah, as a late-night underground East Village event, which kind of clues me into the fact that I'm not going to get rich anytime soon as a playwright in New York City, so I start looking for more lucrative employment, and I stumble into a job, my dream job, really, as the listings editor at a gay and lesbian magazine, which I know sounds pretty fancy, right, because it's got editor in the title, But it's a very simple job. I contact gay and lesbian organizations, and I make lists of their events. You know, their rallies, meetings, parties, that kind of stuff. But one of the perks of this job, perhaps the number one perk of this job, is free entry into any of these events that I care to attend. So I peruse the listings that I have created, and I skip over the lesbian healing circles, you know, and the the drag queen bingo games, And I hone in on something called a pump party, which in case you don't know what that is, it's basically a thing where men stand around in penis pumps admiring each other's cocks. And if you don't know what a penis pump is, it's it's like a display case, really. It's a, a clear plexiglass biscuit tube that you stick your dick into, you pump the air out of it, which results in an instantaneous erection. But this is no ordinary boner, no. The veins bulge, the head swells up like a crab apple, the whole thing gets all distorted and red like a dog boner. When I hear about this, I'm like, yeah, that. (laughs) Now, um, most of these uh, sexy fetish parties in New York City in the early 90s take place at a notoriously nefarious after-hours club in the meatpacking district called the Anvil. It's a three-story, triangle-shaped building painted all black so as to camouflage it against the night sky. There's one door. It's bright red. You can't miss it. And through that door is a tiny lobby with a countertop and a closet overflowing with all of the clothes of all of the men inside the club, which is right through a red velvet curtain. But before we go there, i got to set the scene here a little bit, the, the, the scented scene. The, the smell is the first thing you notice when you step into the anvil. It's a, it's a mix of man sweat and cigarettes, uh, ammonia, and diarrhea. Yeah, I, I spend most of the night breathing through my mouth. 
Well, anyway, the, the cashier is this nevishy little man. He looks like he was going for a, an Iggy Pop look, but it turned out more like a cross between David Bowie and Fran Lebowitz. <laughs> anyway, so I get undressed as per the signage and plop my clothes on the counter, and Fran Bowie slides my Doc Martens back across the counter and says, Keep your boots on. <laughs> so I lace up and push through the stained red velvet curtain into pitch blackness. I hear Depeche Mode off in the distance. All I ever wanted, all I ever needed is here. <laughs> when my, li- my eyes adjust, I-, I start to notice little red lights directing me down a narrow staircase with no handrail into another tiny room. This one with a dirt floor. Or, or maybe it's just a really dirty floor, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't get on the floor. There are hallways going off in different directions, but before I have a chance to venture down any of these hallways, I get stopped by a buff guy in assless chaps standing next to a table piled high with penis pumps. He's not wearing one himself, mind you, which makes me a wee bit suspicious. So I inquire, and he, he tells me, don't want it to get too big. And in his defense, it is quite large. They're not just assless, these chaps. Other than his outfit, assless chaps guy is all business. He tells me, you can add inches of length and girth to your conch with regular penis pump conditioning. And then he proceeds to give me a personal sizing. He kneels in front of me, lubes up a penis pump, and he slides me in. Then he takes this little football-shaped thing that's attached to the cylinder by a tube, and he squeezes it until the contraption attaches itself to my body like a leech. (laughs) Then he hands the football to me, passes the football to me, a gay man, passing footballs, whatever. He passes the football to me, tells me to squeeze it until I feel a tightness in the region, which I'm already feeling, mind you. But I'm nothing if not obedient, so I squeeze and watch in amazement as my cock grows bigger and bigger and bigger like a mutant sea monkey or something. <laughs> then assless chaps guy sends me on my way. Tells me, keep squeezing the football now and again to maintain the sensation. <laughs> so I do. I wander up and down the halls, squeezing and looking, looking and squeezing. <laughs> the halls are lined with all of these little rooms. One is full of BDSM furniture. Another one has a wrestling mat in the middle surrounded by benches. And everywhere are men, naked men of every size and shape and color and religion. Well, okay, I don't actually know their religions, obviously. But but we can assume some of them are not Jewish, am I right? (laughs) Over here, a big hairy bear, his penis pumped full of flesh and fur, is holding onto a tattooed stud by the pump, and with his free hand, he's slapping the plastic. Whack! And every time his hand comes down, the stud winces. Oof! Oof! Over there, a pair of hairless Chelsea boys are frolicking like futuristic cherubs, using their penis pumps like lightsabers. But suddenly, assless chaps guy is on the scene. You break them, boys. You buy them. So the Chelsea boys skulk off to a dark corner to lick their wounded whatever. I have to admit... This penis pump party is pretty interesting, but 
ultimately unsatisfying. It's like window shopping, you know, because you can't actually handle the merchandise. So I leave about five o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And on my way home, I'm pretty worked up, of course. So when I pass by one of those little neighborhood parks, you know, with the... uh, the Adams Family black iron fence around it. And I see a young man, an artist, I assume, because he's chain-smoking and sketching in a pad. So I hop over the gate and circle the park a couple of times until I get the signal. Then we head back to my place. And as soon as we get through the door, we're ravaging one another, ripping our clothes off as we fall into the living room. The artist is kissing my body, working his way down past my belly button. I glance down at him and think, assless chaps guy is right, it's bigger. (laughs) The artist shifts me into drive, and I lay back, anticipating the warm, wet mouth. But then he stops, puts me in neutral. He says, huh, what's this? What's what? This. He points between my legs. Well, I can't see anything. So he grabs my roommate's hand mirror from an end table and he holds it between my legs. My ball sack has turned into a huge ripe plum. I jump up and scream, what is it? And the artist says, I have no idea. Well, of course I assume it's AIDS. I mean, I've been having a lot of gay sex, so it's not completely surprising, but still a shock. I curl up on the couch in a ball, pondering all of my stupid life choices. I mean, what was I thinking? My grandfather's right. I should know better. I work at a gay magazine. There are articles, every issue about AIDS, but I just ignore them. I see men on the street every day like zombies struggling to take their next step. Their arms and faces covered in these horrible purple spots, not unlike what I'm seeing on my own body right now. The artist reaches for his jacket, and I assume he's just going to leave me here to deal with this on my own, which I would. But he asks if I mind if he smokes, and I say no, and so he climbs up on the couch next to me, and we sit here in this heavy silence, him smoking and offering a sympathetic smile once in a while, which I return guiltily. And I I realize it's not just me who thinks this way. Every gay man in New York City in the early 90s, probably every gay man everywhere knows it's just a matter of time. At some point, the artist picks up his pad and does a sketch of me, just an outline of my body from my shoulder to my knee. And it's really, it's comforting, the, the sound of the pencil scratching on the paper. And the, the drawing turns out quite beautiful. Well, he, he rips it out of the pad, he hands it to me, and then he disappears. I never see him again, which isn't really all that unusual. But later that day, I head to the clinic to get tested seems like the right thing to do but since it's the early 90s it'll take weeks to get the results but I figure I can cut to the chase right here by having the doctor examine my balls and so he rolls up on his little stool and I'm standing here with my eyes clenched wishing I was anywhere else the doctor 
pokes around a little bit and he says, well, I don't know about AIDS, but this is the biggest hickey I've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And I think I might shit all over the office because suddenly I'm relaxed and I realize I've been holding my sphincter tighter than a gay teen in a bathhouse. <laughs> the doctor gives me some kind of ointment and sends me on my way, tells me to take it easy with the Hoovers. <laughs> He, only, he didn't know. And, and to be more careful, I, I'm back to my old ways in no time at all. But that morning that I spent with the artist gave me some things to think about. You know, I'm a lot less reckless. I, I'm more empathetic, particularly when I see people who are struggling. Because my grandfather's wrong. People don't get what they deserve. People get what they give. And I choose to give love. And if you don't know what I mean by that, meet me in the restroom after the show. <laughs> Sometimes I laugh out of nervousness. I laugh to seem jolly (laughs) it's not authentic I worry about it but sometimes I laugh in a sort of oh fuck all this seriousness way and I stand by that laughter I was at a kink camp once at an event where you could sign up to have one of the teachers do something to you for 20 minutes this barn was just with people in little clusters watching volunteers get whipped or get hot wax poured on them. One of the teachers was this straight guy who I found very hot but figured, you know, I wouldn't be playing with him until at this event I saw that he was taking volunteers. His name was Mr. Sparks. He did electroplay. Tall, lean, muscular black guy always wearing a top hat and tails always had this little Mona Lisa kind of grin on him well my name was called Mr. Sparks had a female assistant and the two of them chained my wrists up in the air to this scaffolding and the chains had some leeway to them so I could actually run away a few steps then be yanked back like a dog so they stripped me naked chain me up and the assistant says Mr. Sparks will be using a real electric cattle prod and a police taser the chains allow you to turn around in case you don't want to see what's coming well at first I chose to be turned away but Mr. Sparks makes this taser crackle right next to my ear and I just screamed like a child. So I turned to face him, and now I'm seeing all this stuff coming at me, and I just can't stop screaming and laughing. I'll tell you, when he jabbed that cattle prod into my butt cheek, I I, I did not feel it on the surface of the skin. I felt like a knife was slicing through my central nervous system deep inside me i was jumping up and down like i was dancing on fire my laughter just grew uncontrollable it was 
it was like the laughter of someone having an exorcism or something like many things just needed to explode out of me all at once like joy terror titillation ecstasy i was like a volcano just erupting with laughter well that entire barn full of people everyone just put down what they were doing to gather around and laugh with me. This uncontrollable laughter just like was a wave that took over the room. And when they finally unchained me, people kept coming up to me and saying what I was feeling, which was, I don't understand it, but that was funny and hot. So when people say laughter has no place in sex or kink, you know, it ruins the vibe or it must be inauthentic, I say, fuck it. Things can be funny and hot. This is Risk. This is Death Cab for Cutie behind me now, and we just heard from me. Now, you might have noticed on this episode and last week's episode, we've featured these little stories, these mini stories. We're calling them anecdotes, where something loaded happens, but you can tell it in about three minutes, three minutes and 30 seconds, or even less. The idea is, you know, it's a story about something kind of loaded that happened, something kind of, you know, high stakes seeming, but went by pretty quick. You know, not something that you need a ton of setup for, not a big life journey sort of thing, but a very memorable incident that really struck you, or in the case today, electrocuted you. So you should know where to go, risk-show.com slash submissions, where there's all the information about how to pitch us, you know, send an email to pitches at risk-show.com. We want to hear your little mini stories and see if you might be able to get one on the podcast. And before my little anecdote, we heard from Jay Bird that was recorded last time Risk was in Austin, Texas. You can find Jay at James Dean J. Bird with a B-Y-R-D dot com. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Now postage rates have gone up again but thankfully stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates with stamps.com you save five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40 percent off shipping rates stamps.com brings all the services of the u.s postal service right to your computer you just print official u.s postage 24 7 for any letter any package any class of mail anywhere you want to send it's a no-brainer. I mean, we've been using Stamps.com at risk and at the Story Studio 
for many years now, and we love it. It saves you time and money. There's over 700,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Our final story on this week's episode is quite a trip. Kyle Ocasio shared this story at the Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City. By the way, there's another one of those happening this Thursday, February 27th. You can find Kyle on Twitter and Instagram at Ocasio Kyle. And here she is now with a story we call Nightmare at Seven Feet. excited to be here and I'm going to share with you guys a story that has a feeling behind it that's probably really familiar to a lot of you guys. Um, You know that feeling when you can't get a rotisserie chicken through airport security (laughs) and and you're wearing a maxi pad made in 1985? You guys know that feeling? My, uh, someone has. She's got one on now. Um, My mom always used to tell me that every woman should have two things. A separate bank account (laughs) and an emergency maxi pad. Uh, She died almost 20 years ago and it was something that was still hard for me to process. Even the time, they say time makes things easier. It doesn't really. And at the time, I was so young to deal with that level of loss that instead of really having grief, I had a lot of anger and I didn't know where it came from And uh, I actually had gone to a psychiatrist and shared with her how angry I was feeling. And she suggested that maybe I was bipolar. And I was like, let's not use labels. (laughs) And I don't really think that was it. I think that I was just so angry. And I think it's okay to be angry sometimes. It's just what you do with it. And that's what my story is about. Uh, It is 2003. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I am visiting my... Fa- yeah, did someone clap for Cleveland? Oh my God. Our river caught on fire, by the way. Um, so I'm visiting my family there with my then-husband and my 10-month-old baby. And this is the first time that I've been home since my mom died. And it was a really bittersweet trip because I was very excited for my sister and my aunt to see the baby. Uh, but there was sort of a dark cloud over it. I remember as a kid that I always used to hear my mom's slippers walking down the hall to wake me up. And this trip, I didn't hear anything. And so the sadness made me feel very anxious. And I wanted to get back to New York. Uh, I felt like I belonged here. I had been living here a long time. And I just I wanted to get out of there. So luckily, we were flying back that day. And as we were getting ready, my aunt was packing up the car for me and she was putting our suitcases in and she hands me a rotisserie chicken (laughs) and she says, this is for when you get home. It's a nice low fat meal and all you have to do is just pop it in the oven. You don't have to cook. It'll make your life easy. 
And I was like, well, thank you. This is great. And, and it was really kind of a sweet gesture because it kind of reminded me of something that my mom would have done. Like that chicken was so sentimental because it was like someone was taking care of me after I had spent almost a year of taking care of a baby and, and feeling like I was very alone in it. It was just very nice. So as she's putting the stuff in the car, I just do a quick run back to the house to make sure I've gathered everything up. And as I am going from room to room picking up things, I suddenly, out of nowhere, feel my period drop. <laughs> so I know it's a little bit of an overshare, but... Uh, <laughs> So here's the deal. For those of you who don't know, like a little biology, when you're pregnant and after you have a baby, you don't get your period like those eggs, those bitches are getting stored up there and then they just drop and you don't know when it's going to be. So all of a sudden I get it and, I, and I'm literally, I'm like, I'm running into the, to the bathroom, scrambling, looking for uh, something. From my, my aunt probably hadn't had her period in like 30 years. <laughs> So I'm like scrambling. I find, I literally find a maxi pad from like 1985. It's like a Reagan administration maxi pad. I am wearing a Republican maxi pad. So I put it on. I take another one. I throw, I can't even believe she has any. Throw them in my diaper bag. Get in the car. So this little setback has cost us about 15 minutes in time. And I'm really, really like anxious and and I don't want to miss the flight. So we're getting there. My aunt drops us off at the airport. We're rushing. My husband has the baby. I've got the diaper bag and the snacks. And I'm rushing. I've got the rotisserie chicken in the diaper bag. And I'm running so fast that I actually trip over my flip-flop, fall down. The diaper bag breaks my fall. That's not even the most embarrassing part. The most embarrassing part is that three mini bottles of vodka fall out of it. (laughs) In full view of everyone watching. So... So we're in the security line, and I just look like a drunk mother. And by the way, I'm so hungry. I realized this whole fiasco, I hadn't even eaten breakfast yet. So I'm like starting to get hangry. I've got my period. Like, it's just not, it's not my best day. So I put all the stuff on the security belt line, and the TSA stops me and says that there's something suspicious in my diaper bag. So they pull out the rotisserie chicken. (laughs) And the guy's telling me that I can't take it through. And I'm like, it's not a bomb, it's a chicken. Not the thing you say post 9-11 in an airport. So I'm like, all right, this fucker's probably going to eat this on his break, you know? So I get through. I'm so defeated. I feel like, gosh, I'm hungry. I don't even have the chicken anymore. Frustrated. So we have just minutes to spare. So we're walking to the gate. We get to the gate. We board the plane. Husband's holding the baby. I've got the diaper bag. Everybody else is on. We're the last people on. I start to walk towards the end of the plane, which is where our seats are. As I go, I notice that the seats marked 23F, 23 whatever, are roped off. As I notice that, I look up for some help, and I see a flight attendant who had the biggest scowl on her face. She just looked so angry. And I said to her, and by the way, she had glitter eyeshadow. I don't know. I just wanted to say that. Um, yeah. You'd think someone that had like literal disco balls on their eyelids would be fun. But no, she was not fun. So I looked up at her and I said, um, hi, uh, these are my seats. I, I, they're roped off. She goes, yes, I know they're roped off. We're working on it. I said, okay, well, I don't know what, I'm, what, what would you like me to do? She goes, I just said we're working on it. 
So I'm like, all right, fine. This woman is whatever. So uh, my husband is with the baby, and they lean to this side of the plane, and I've got the diaper bag, and I unconsciously sort of lean my arm on the forbidden seat, not on the seat itself, just on the armrest. I'm there for a second. I'm just like boggled down by everything. And all of a sudden, I hear like a literal scream going, what are you doing? Did you hear what I just said? You can't sit there. I said, I'm not sitting here. I'm just resting my arm. And I started to get a little defensive at this point. Like, what the hell? I just, I've got a baby. I'm tired. I want to sit in my seats. The next thing I know, she turns around. She grabs a phone. She calls the cockpit. And she says, yes, hi. I'm getting some major attitude back here. I got two irate passengers. I'm going to need some backup. Backup? What are you, a fucking Navy SEAL? Going on a covert mission? Bitch, you're on the Cleveland flight. It's not the JFK to Paris. Calm down. Going to Ohio. So she says she has two irate passengers. At this point, my then-husband has to chime in and say, uh, two, ma'am? Because <laughs> I haven't said anything this whole time. <laughs> so the next thing I know, I just suddenly get so frustrated that I kind of, I feel like I have to stand up for myself a little bit. And I just said to her, And I brought that voice on. You know that, uh, can I speak to your manager voice? That I'd never done in my entire life. But I just said, excuse me, uh, I'd like to know your name. Because I'm going to let your supervisor know that this is the worst customer service I have ever experienced. And then she says, and I'll never forget it. She takes her finger and she points it right in my face. And she says, My name is Janine. (laughs) And don't you ever forget it. (laughs) And she poked me in the tit. (laughs) I was titty poked by Janine. So as she's doing this, she says, my name is Janine, and don't you ever forget it. And at that moment, she walks by me and hits me with her shoulder, and I don't really know what happened next, except I felt this fury bubbling up in me. And they say, (laughs) my fist did this little dance through the air and knocked this bitch out. Punched her right in the face. (laughs) They say. (laughs) I really don't remember much. I I like blacked out. All all I remember was my husband vaguely jumping in the middle, separating us, but I still got like a little mush in. And um, you know how like that show snapped when some of the women plead insanity? (laughs) And they say they blacked out. They're like, I don't know. He said he didn't like dinner. And then somehow 27 times he was stabbed with a knife. (laughs) I believe them now. (laughs) The rage just, you you don't know what, it just blacks you out. And I think it was really coming from a lot of grief and a lot of pain. But I'm, I'm in this moment and I'm sort of like confused. And I felt kind of equal parts euphoria 
confusion, humiliation. I, I feel everybody staring at me. And uh, what also I feel is a sensation of cold handcuffs on my wrists. So uh, shit starts to get real. <laughs> I'm in handcuffs and I'm walking off. They also decide to arrest my husband too, uh, which we still didn't know why. And um, one of the officers, the police officers, is carrying my child saying that they are going to put him in foster care unless I have a relative that can come and pick him up. So we get to the holding area in the airport and I call my aunt and she says, wow, honey, that was fast. You back? <laughs> I said, no, um, Aunt Mary, I'm actually, uh, I, I'm, I'm getting arrested. I'm going to jail. She goes, you're so silly. I'll talk to you later. And she hangs up. <laughs> I had to call her three times. <laughs> Finally, uh, she uh, gets my uncle on the phone and my uncle is one of those, he's an older guy, like very well connected in Cleveland, knows everybody, knows all these judges. Somehow, he saved me because he spoke to the police officer and said, look, the plane wasn't in the air. That would be a felony. This could be a misdemeanor. You can let her go. You don't have to hold her overnight. Whatever it is, he worked his magic and the cops looked at me and they said, okay, you're free to go with one small catch. Um, you cannot leave this airport. You cannot leave from this airport. You can't fly out or any airport. Uh, so basically what he was saying was that I was on the no-fly list. Me and Osama bin Laden. <laughs> Same list. <laughs> he did inform us that there was a Greyhound bus station just a few blocks away. Uh, that could have been my punishment alone. Okay, not sure if anyone's ever taken a Greyhound bus. Uh, it's very humbling to take a 12-hour bus ride. The lady in front of me kept turning around to ask me when the spaceship was going to stop. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. So once we get back to New York, uh, kind of settled into my life a little bit. Uh, the case against me uh, was initial. The criminal case was dropped because we. I got a lawyer for pro bono, and he helped me. Uh, we looked into her file, and it turned out that this was not the first incident. She actually had a history of kind of harassing young moms uh, with kids. So I was like the third family that this had happened. But um, I'm happy to report I was the first person that punched her. So, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Give it up for um, uncontrollable rage. Uh, so that case was, uh, was eventually dropped, and I sort of settled into my life. I ended up having a couple other kids. I ended up getting into comedy. Life is going well. And then uh, just as I was warned by the lawyer, he said, be careful, she may come back with a civil case. She just seems crazy enough. And sure enough, she did. Um, she tried to sue me for $20,000 for vertigo and emotional distress. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it was really, really a stressful time for me. I obviously did not have that kind of money, and I was trying to fight it. So initially I got in, we had a lawyer, I was trying. I went to a deposition where she lied in the deposition. Uh, it, it was just a lot of chaos and a lot of craziness. And my lawyer told me, he said, look, you can keep fighting this or you can settle with her. They're willing to take $3,000. And he said, if it makes you feel any better, her lawyer's going to get most of it. <laughs> and I said, but it's not fair. It's not fair. Like, this didn't feel right. Like, I felt like I was wronged. This is not okay. I can't just give in to this. 
And then I kind of had this thought, like, I don't have to prove myself all the time. I don't have to make someone know that I'm right and they're wrong. And that was a really, really, really hard thing for me to surrender to. But I also didn't have the money to keep fighting it. So basically, I paid $3,000 to tell you guys this story. Uh, I had to borrow the money. Um, and I'm sure that all of you in here can find one person in your life that you'd gladly pay three grand to never have to see again. So that's basically what happened. I kind of looked at it like, I'm getting rid of this. I'm getting rid of this stress. I'm getting rid of this toxicness. It's done. So uh, years later, I decided, I was just curious. And I'm talking many years later, almost seven or eight years later. I looked her up on Facebook. <laughs> I started to feel a sense of comfort. Like, well, maybe she's not so bad. I mean, maybe we're, we're both human. I got to learn to forgive. I can't, she, I can't walk around with this anger. And I'm looking down and I see, it looks like she's a Sunday school teacher. There's some pictures with some kids and they're cute. And then I scroll down a little bit and I see a picture of her with a rifle and like a dead deer in the background. Yeah, and then it says Merry Christmas on the bottom. And uh, then I look at another picture and this was a few years later. I see a MAGA hat, <laughs> a big old red MAGA hat. Say no more. <laughs> Sorry, Trump supporters, even you don't deserve that bitch. Uh, <laughs> I'm sitting around the table recently, actually, and talking to some of my friends and telling this story. My friends love this story. I'm like, I'm a psycho in this story. Like, how do you guys like this story? So, uh, so I'm telling my friends the story, and my son, the baby in the incident, who is now 17, said to me, he's like, um, Mom, he's like, first of all, that's kind of badass what you did. <laughs> he's like, it's also a little psycho. <laughs> and then he asked a question that I never thought to ask in this whole thing. He's like, Mom, why were the seats roped off? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. And I was so curious. I called the law firm. <laughs> And that lawyer is no longer there. And they had some guy, some like new guy, look up the file for me. Just humor me. And so the guy looks it up and he's like, well, why were the seats roped off? Oh, it says here, apparently, the flight before you, a passenger got her period all over the seats. <laughs> Which brings me back to what my mother said separate bank account and an emergency maxi pad <laughs> thank you guys <laughs> you made a fool of me but the broken dreams have got to
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is ELO behind me now, and we just heard from Kyle Ocasio, who you can find on Twitter or Instagram at Ocasio Kyle. Now, if you are in the habit of not listening to these <laughs> final announcements, then you should get into that habit because this is where we announce where Risk is coming next. And you could either pitch us to be in one of these shows or come out and see us. On Thursday, February 27th, Risk is back at Caveat in New York City. Great cast. Come out and see us Thursday, February 27th at Caveat in New York. On March 4th, we are back in Los Angeles at The Virgil. The last show at The Virgil was just spectacular. So come on out March 4th at The Virgil in LA. On March 13th, we're in Reno, Nevada at the Bluebird. March 13th, Reno at the Bluebird. On March 20th, we're in Cleveland at the Museum of Contemporary Art. March 20th is Cleveland. April 17th is New Haven, Connecticut at the Space Ballroom. May 15th is in Dallas, Texas at Sons of Herman Hall. June 12th is in Durham, North Carolina at Motor Co. Music Hall. June 13th is in Asheville, North Carolina at the Gray Eagle. And if you don't already know, Risk has a sister company. We have a separate business called The Story Studio at thestorystudio.org. Now, we mostly teach corporate workshops. We teach storytelling workshops to businesses like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and American Express to help staff members learn how to communicate in a more human, more compelling, more emotional way. But there's so much more. We teach in-person workshops for anyone interested in storytelling for business or storytelling for performance in New York, in Los Angeles, and in Minneapolis. We teach online workshops where you can meet with a teacher and several other students and get feedback online. Our faculty are the same folks who coach the risk storytellers. And the same people that I turn to when I want to work on one of my stories with someone. And there's also our video courses that you can download and take in your own time. All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Holy <laughs> Rubber. <laughs> rubber, 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 rubber.